0: Welcome back to another episode of Veritas, the truth behind Asian-Americans and affirmative action. I'm Karina. And I'm Terrell. And today, we'll be unpacking some of the underrepresented perspectives within the Asian-American community.
1: To give a quick disclaimer, we are not claiming that these are the definitive stances of any given group, but I think we do have to acknowledge that the current debate surrounding affirmative action has been dominated for the most part, by East Asian, specifically Chinese-American voices.
0: Following the Fisher v. University of Texas ruling that protected race-conscious policies in the interest of diversity, in 2014, Edward Bloom created Students for Fair Admissions to recruit Asian plaintiffs, specifically Chinese-American students, for the purpose of initiating new lawsuits against Harvard University and the University of North Carolina.
1: Co-opting the Chinese immigrant narrative and using it to argue against affirmative action, SFFA implies that these views are representative of Asian Americans as a whole and in doing so ignores the vast diversity within the community as well as its historic support of race-conscious admissions. And
0: if we look at some of SFFA's most vocal defenders, we'd find anti-affirmative action organizations like Asian American Coalition for Education, or the AACE, they're a grassroots foundation devoted to promoting equal rights for Asian-Americans in education and education-related activities.
1: However, despite the Asian-American label, the group is more accurately described as being Chinese-American. AACE's presidency and vice-presidency are currently held by two Chinese-American professionals, corporate strategist Yu Zhao and data analyst Jack Ouyang. Looking at the organization's leadership, At least 13 out of the 16 positions listed are being held by individuals of Chinese descent. And what's most telling about the group's audience? Just visit
0: AACE's official webpage and note that the only alternative language option is Mandarin Chinese.
1: Which leads me to wonder, what about the rest of us? Where are our voices in this conversation? The better question is,
0: why aren't they being listened to? Regardless of their stance on race-conscious admissions, diversifying the media's portrayal of Asian Americans in the Harvard lawsuit is crucial. In fact, according to a 2012-2016 to 2016 study conducted by Karthik Ramakrishnan and Janelle Wong on AAPI data, nearly two-thirds of Asian Americans actually support affirmative action policies.
1: In addition to that, Despite the Chinese-American approval rating falling from 78 to 41% in the last decade, the National Asian American Survey shows that from 2012 to 2016, all other Asian-American groups have consistently supported race-conscious policies at an approval rating of around 70%. I think that just goes to show that
0: the Asian-American story is complicated. It isn't just a one-narrative-fits-all. I'm both South Asian and Southeast Asian, and I have family ties to different regions and countries within South Asia. I grew up with food, culture, and values of various Asian traditions, ones that aren't often recognized or represented in news or media. My family's story and journey to the United States isn't one that would fit into the typical Asian American narrative, and for this reason it feels difficult for me to identify that way. It almost feels performative to be Asian American.
1: Do you feel like you had to fulfill this kind of image of a model Asian-American person? Of course, that's exactly what I mean by performative.
0: America sees Indian-Americans winning the spelling bee in math competitions, and that's how we get to the model minority myth. As an Indian-American kid growing up in the United States, I definitely felt a societal pressure to fit the mold of the model minority. I'm expected to achieve a higher degree of success, Otherwise, I would get left behind, or in the context of this podcast series, never get into a good college.
1: And with something like the model minority myth, it has this twofold effect of, if you're Asian and you fit into it, you reinforce the stereotype. And if you don't, then you're just a failure. Growing up in a low-income household, I never felt like a model minority. Sure, people I went to school with would assume that my parents were doctors, that we were rich, and attribute my good grades to the fact that I was Chinese. But that wasn't true at all. My parents weren't doctors. They came over to the States as restaurant workers. We struggled to make ends meet, just like the rest of America. So this narrative that I'm supposed to be more economically well-off or academically gifted never sat well with me.
0: That's the thing. Edward Bloom deliberately made the perfect model minority to be the centerpiece of his case. I, um, I needed plaintiffs. I needed Asian plaintiffs. And finding plaintiffs to challenge uh, the Ivy League admissions policies, Harvard in particular, is not an easy thing to do. Well, he got his Asian plaintiffs all right. But who's really being represented? Not the students who fall on the margins outside of the myth.
1: You're right. SFFA banks on this reverse racism argument, aligning the Asian American dream to white conservative values. They hinge on this idea that Asians have somehow made it in this country. If the myth equals proximity to whiteness, then it basically casts aside any Asian American who doesn't fit into this clean-cut image. The fact
0: is, SFFA misrepresents Asian America. According to Oyan Poon, a renowned Asian American scholar, There are clear generational and class divisions between Asian Americans who support or oppose affirmative action. SFFA's most active supporters tend to be highly educated Chinese Americans who are recent immigrants under visas like H-1B and EB-1. Poon says, their immigration patterns are very different than for earlier waves of Chinese immigrants who came in when immigration policies in the United States allowed for more family reunification in the 1960s and 1970s.
1: Hmm, that's interesting. But what about the other side? Asian
0: Americans that oppose SFFA tend to be more ethnically diverse, according to Poon. so they consist of East Asians, South Asians, and Southeast Asians. The National Council of Asian Pacific Americans, or the N.C.A.P.A., and Asian Americans Advancing Justice, or AAAJ, were both organizations found in the civil rights era and are major Harvard supporters in this case. There are also a lot of student affinity groups at Harvard, like the South Asian Association and the Asian American Women's Association, that formed a coalition called Defend Diversity to support the use of race in Harvard's admissions processes.
1: I like that you brought up class divisions, because I think we also need to address the stereotype that all Asians are wealthy. Conservatives often point to the fact that Asians and Pacific Islanders have a median household income about 39% greater than the national average, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, with Indian, Filipino, Japanese, and Chinese Americans being the highest earners. On the surface, it looks like we're all doing well, right? Well, yes, but numbers are deceiving.
0: A statistical median like that means nothing if you can't put that number into context. If we look beyond the high-earning groups, we actually see that many Asian American households are struggling. According to the Pew Research Center, Asian Americans in 2016 had the largest income gap out of all ethnic minority groups. Asians in the 90th percentile had incomes 10.7 times greater than those in the bottom 10th percentile.
1: A large makeup of these economically vulnerable communities includes Southeast Asians whose complicated history with US global militarization displaced them during the 1970s. Forcibly removed from their homes in Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, many of them were placed into impoverished inner city locations with little social and economic support. Many second generation children struggle academically as their families are still living through the economic effects of their displacement. As a result, Southeast Asians are less likely than other Asian American groups to pursue a college degree and subsequently less likely to move up in economic status.
0: That trauma that the parents carry with them is transmitted to their young people, to their children. We see that appear in the community in lots of different ways. Some of the parents of the young people we work with have, have turned to alcohol or substance abuse to try to deal with and cope with what they've had to experience. Many of them suffer from different mental health conditions. Many of them aren't able to find employment or work um, in their homes and, or in the community. And so the young people carry that burden. That was Ashley Uyeda, a community organizer of Khmer Girls in Action, an outreach group for Cambodian-American women. In addition, in 2013, 27.4% of Hmong American families were living below the poverty line, compared to the national average of 11.3%. That's over twice as high.
1: Many Southeast Asians also still struggle with linguistic barriers. For example, 51.5% of Vietnamese Americans report speaking English less than very well, along with just under 40% of Cambodians and Laotians. That's a huge obstacle in finding a good job, in succeeding in school, and in gaining social capital. But these struggles are being overshadowed by the general success of their East Asian counterparts.
0: I see a similar situation with the perceived success of South Asians. Out of all AAPI groups, Indian Americans have the highest number of individuals with bachelor's degrees at 72% and a median household income of around $100,000. But on the other end of the spectrum, we have Bhutanese and Burmese communities, where only approximately 9% of individuals graduate from four-year institutions. These communities average at about $36,000 for median household income, with poverty rates as high as 33 to 35%. It's pretty insane
1: how polarized these statistics are across the board. There's no evidence to suggest that all Asian Americans can even fit into this narrow definition of a model minority. We're struggling from multiple ends. But one thing that I do find interesting is the fact that despite being one of the quote unquote successful Asian American groups, Indian Americans have consistently shown support for affirmative action in the polls. I mean, this just goes
0: to show that you can't fit us all in a box.
1: Yet, the media has latched onto this one specific image of an Asian American, particularly in this case, an overachieving East Asian, or to be specific, Chinese American student. And as a result, there's so much misinformation about other types of experiences.
0: You see this all the time with the media. They take specific instances of experiences and stories and generalize them to an entire group of people in hurtful ways, like taking the achievements of a select group of East Asians or Chinese Americans and applying them to all Asian Americans.
1: Yeah, the media does this in so many cases, and these misrepresentations can have dire societal impacts. I would take Islamophobia to be a huge example of this. In a
0: racialized context, Islamophobia has had a major impact on how South Asian Americans navigate and perform their identity, especially for kids like me who grew up post-9-11. Don't talk about politics. Don't resist the TSA at the airport. If someone, say, calls you a terrorist or makes a joke, don't confront them. And in the context of college admissions, don't tell the story you want to tell or should tell. For fear of judgment from the admissions committee, and ultimately a rejection letter. Just let everything go. When 9-11 happened, I was a sophomore in high school. My dad sits everybody down at the dinner table, he's like, all right, Hassan, whatever you do, do not tell people you're Muslim, do not talk about politics. I was like, all right, dad, I'll, I'll just hide it. Cool. <laughs> and this just rubs off. And like, my dad's from that generation, like a lot of immigrants, where he feels like if you come to this country, you pay this thing like the American dream tax, right? Like you're going to endure some racism. And if it doesn't cost you your life, well, hey, you lucked out, pay it. There you go, Uncle Sam. But for me, like a lot of us, I was born here. So I actually have the audacity of equality. Like, maybe he's right. I don't know, put your head down, go be a doctor, get a house in the burbs, laugh later, let him call him, whatever you want. But then I'm like, wait, isn't it our job to, like, push the needle forward little by little? Isn't that how all this stuff happens? Scotus decision, then this, then this. I don't know. That was Hassan Minaj in his episode, Homecoming King, a Netflix stand-up comedy special. In this special, he covers his upbringing as a South Asian American and Muslim growing up in the United States. Islamophobia is a serious issue that South Asians, among other groups, face on a daily basis, and it's not talked about enough in the grand scheme of AAPI issues. While the affirmative action debate is a large part of modern-day Asian American experience, It shouldn't be the only issue we pay attention to. If there's anything we want to express in this episode, it's that there is a vast diversity in our community, and along with
1: that, a wide range of stories we should be unpacking. That's a really important issue that we need to talk more about. Another takeaway that I have is that there's a pressing need to disaggregate AAPI data. As one Vietnamese Harvard student, Thang Dip, puts it, The Asian American and Pacific Islander community is too often represented as a monolith. Supporting affirmative action means actively challenging that stereotype of the model minority. Definitely, by disaggregating national data,
0: we can better help disadvantaged members of our communities on a federal level. From increasing funding to schools with high-low income enrollment, to providing culture-specific aid to marginalized ethnic groups, Asian-Americans have much to gain from this initiative.
1: Hopefully, initiatives like this can bring awareness to serious events that are happening right now in the Asian-American community. I mean, I'm shocked by the lack of coverage on Southeast Asian deportations under this Trump administration, or the fact that thousands of undocumented Asian immigrant workers are left without access to vital health care or a pathway to citizenship each year. These are some large, overwhelming issues,
0: and they deserve to be discussed on a grander scale. But why has affirmative
1: action blown up to
0: become such a hot-button topic?
1: I think it all comes down to opportunity and our access to it. I keep going back to this question I got from a white classmate back in high school in the process of applying to colleges. He asked me, how do you feel about your spot automatically being taken by a black or hispanic person by a person of color 17 year old me i was taken aback no one had ever asked me this question i didn't even know if i considered myself a person of color and i didn't know how to respond i just said you know what i believe in diversity looking back this wasn't that great of an answer It was a go-to blanket statement where I didn't have to take that platform to address why I actually felt so anxious about affirmative action. There was a part of me that feared being Chinese was going to ruin my chances of getting into a really good school. Do you think your upbringing affected how you view affirmative action? Definitely. My parents really, truly believed in the American dream. They crossed oceans They left back family for this life. They worked so hard to provide for my siblings and I to give us opportunities they didn't have. And I could never thank them enough for it. But their experience also made them very firmly against affirmative action. They were very much a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps types of people and viewed the model minority myth as somewhat of a compliment. And, to be honest, I can't really blame them for it. But do you agree with their standpoint? The thing is, I can see where my parents are coming from. But at the same time, this debate is so much more than just about college admissions. I think that there is to some extent an implicit Asian bias in Harvard's admissions process. But in claiming that African American and Hispanic students are taking away Asian seats? That's not a viable argument. Why are we letting Edward Bloom and SFFA perpetuate this idea that minority students have to scramble and have to fight over X amount of seats? We all know who benefits the most if we eliminate race conscious policies at Harvard. And here's a hint, it's not us.
0: I completely agree. My family has similar sentiments about the American dream, and I shared similar fears of not getting into a good college because of my race. SFFA's zero-sum framing ultimately benefits white students. If they wanted to solve anti-Asian discrimination, they would have just stated that explicitly in their proposed solution. But instead, they're asking to get rid of affirmative action. Those are two completely different situations. If SFFA despises unfair bonuses, then why aren't they going after legacy or athlete admissions?
1: Those are all very valid points. But I'm curious, would you say race-conscious policies helped or hindered you in the process of applying to college?
0: You know, I can't really tell. I went to a public high school in central New Jersey, which has one of the fastest-growing South Asian populations in the country. I definitely felt a pressure to score really high on the SAT and ACT, especially compared to my non-Asian classmates. It basically felt like I was competing with South Asian American students from across the region for an arbitrary, unpromised acceptance letter to a college. I couldn't help but think that my identity was hurting my chances of getting into college, and that the admissions committee would see me as one of many South Asian Americans and not recognize me for my individuality and what I bring to the table. It was a sentiment a lot of my classmates felt as well. Did you share a similar experience with race conscious
1: policies? To be honest, I think they helped. To some degree. Now, I don't want to speak on behalf of any other Asian American first-gen college student, because our experiences can be so vastly different. But for me, My application heavily expressed that, for one, I was going to be the first in my family to attend college, two, that I came from a low-income immigrant background, and three, that as a Chinese-American woman growing up in a mainly white and Hispanic community, who was also one of the only Asians in her high school, I faced challenges that were specific to me and to my experience in life. So if you were to ask me to present a race-neutral version of that, I couldn't possibly do it.
0: I know we do have some disagreements here,
1: but I think one thing we
0: can both agree on is that we all have struggles that fall under an Asian American or immigrant umbrella. We never talk about it openly with each other. I think we tend to sort of keep our heads down as we trudge our way through these problems in isolation.
1: And that's exactly what we want to push against in this podcast. As we close out the series with this final episode, We want to emphasize the importance of not only embracing the diversity of the Asian American experience, but also standing in solidarity with one another and our allies to tackle the AAPI issues we face on a daily basis. Bringing these issues into the limelight and having open discussions about them is the first of many steps that will carry Asian Americans beyond the model minority myth.
0: With that, We leave you with some advice and encouragement from students and professors from Arizona State University, Tempe campus, in a video titled Asian Pacific American 101, Positive Stereotypes Cause Harm. I describe myself as a strong person. I'm the go-getter. Like if I want something, I definitely go for it. I'm actually horrible at math. I also do poetry. It's a great form of expression. Being boring is my greatest fear. (laughs) But um, I'm a proud US citizen and a proud Indian.
1: I know I'm Taiwanese, but I also believe I'm American. As a, like a culture clash. In contrast to the idea that Asian Americans are perpetual foreigners, they've been around since the early 1600s. Yet that history becomes sort of washed out.
0: You know, if I complained about you know having to do all of this stuff or being stressful, and they're like, oh well, it's okay because you're Asian.
1: And I feel like it's very important to recognize that. Um, Asians aren't just stereotypes. No culture is just a
0: stereotype. And we're simply just people like living in this world and everyone has their faults and no one should be pigeonholed to just expect it to be like one thing or one way. Like We can all be diverse and have our issues and our problems and also our strengths and the things that make us great. Signing off one last time, I'm Karina.
1: And I'm Tara.
0: We thank you for listening to Veritas. The Truth Behind Asian-Americans and Affirmative Action.
1: Hi, this is Professor Franklin Odo. These podcasts are products of a research colloquium that I taught in the American Studies Department of Amherst College. We are grateful for support from Associate Dean Austin Surratt and from Catherine Epstein, Provost and Dean of the Faculty at Amherst College.